0: On today's broadcast, Mr. Eugene Higgins takes up the subject of the Lord's return and its implication particularly for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, and he does so in an effort to get them to understand what exactly it means for them, and to once again present the invitation as given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, come. Yes, in a world that seems to have lost all hope, there is a way back to true purpose and fulfillment.
1: Someone has said that while the world is looking on for a hopeless end, those who are saved have endless hope. And I think that first of all, we will need to define how we're using that word because very often we use the word hope in the sense of I hope that something will happen. That is, I'm not sure it will happen, but I hope it will happen. But the Bible often uses the word hope in its other sense, as a prospect, as a a certain future, a certain expectation that will take place. And the coming of the Lord Jesus is called, and and his return eventually with his people to this earth is called, the blessed hope, even the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The verse that we referred to in the hymn tonight at the opening of the meeting, He that shall come, will come, and will not tarry, is most important to note. Because, of course, it's not just deciding, the writer didn't decide, I don't want to use the word will twice, so I'll use the word shall. Shall. The word shall carries obligation. For instance, if you looked it up in a a dictionary, it's probable that you would get some kind of example of usage like this. The board of directors shall be responsible for payment to stockholders or the college president shall report financial shortfalls to the executive director each semester. That's not just a statement of fact. This is what the man will do. It is a statement of obligation. This is what he must do. When the Lord Jesus of him, it is said, he that shall come will come. It is pointing to someone who has an obligation. Why is he obliged? Why does the Lord Jesus have an obligation to return? Well, some very simple reasons for that that I need to go over at the beginning of the meeting. First of all, this is what obligates him, his people. Save men and women. He promised us. He promised us he's coming back. He said that. He set the precedent when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He said to his disciples, if I go back to heaven, I will come again and receive you to myself. There are prophecies that remind us that he will come with clouds and return with his people to set up his kingdom in this world. Now, he was not foiled when they sealed the tomb. He cannot fail. Those prophecies will be fulfilled. He is never false in his promises, so he is obligated because he has said it. He is obligated as well because this is his world. This is his world. He made it. He will not allow injustice. He will not allow unrighteousness to continue to go on unchecked and unpunished. You know, that's one huge difference between the atheist's view of the world and the Christian's view of the world. To an atheist, there is no justice in this world. Things just happen because there's no divine being. Things just happen and good people suffer. There's injustice and babies die, there's injustice. But there's no setting it right at any time. There's no justice in some next world either. But you see, the Christian's world is so much larger because we understand that this is God's world and that one day he will set things right. And if you say, well, if there is a God, why hasn't he acted yet? Why hasn't he done things yet? It would be a little, I don't know if you've ever read a John Grissom novel, perhaps. It would be a little like going halfway through the book, see, and all of a sudden stopping and saying, this man is a horrible author. Look, this guy's getting away with all this stuff and nobody's punishing him. He's not being called to task. And how could this be? And of course, somebody would say, hey, wait, you are not done the book yet. Wait till you get to the end. The knots will all be untied. Everything will be fixed when you get to the end. Just keep reading. And then, my friend, we are not yet to the end of what God is doing. He is patiently waiting because he wants you to be saved. He is graciously extending. This glorious period of time called the age of grace, he wants as many people as possible to be saved. When he rings the curtain down on this world, it will be impossible for anyone else to be saved. So it is his grace that is putting up with the injustice that's in this world. And no one, please, please hear what I'm saying. No one feels it so keenly as does God. No one. See, there are people in the world tonight, they don't have a care in the world about how things are. No concern at all. Then there are Christians, let me say, and they see how certain people live. And deep in their heart they feel such a grief as they watch people wasting their lives in sin. Do you understand I'm going beyond what sensible people feel? I'm going beyond what saved people feel. And I am telling you that the heart of God, who loves what is right and hates what is evil, He's the one who feels at the most that this world is a world of injustice. One day, his son will come back and right the wrong. He's obligated. That's why the book of Revelation starts with these words, the things which must shortly come to pass. And the word that John chose is the word that means he's obliged, he's obligated, this has to happen. And in fact, the very honor of his father God obligates the Lord Jesus to return. He will remove sin from this world. He will present a world that has been rescued from the mismanagement of man and from the awful catastrophe of sin, and he will present it back to his God. Theologians call that theodicy, the justice of God at work in our world in the face of evil. He will, he will come again. And when the moment arrives, he will come, and he will come without delay. So I want you to notice some very, very simple, but I think important points. First of all, the world, the world in which we live, is a world that is desperate for hope. Desperate for hope. You see, the future seems bleak to many people in the know. A number of years ago, Bertrand Russell, just so you understand this, Bertrand Russell was a pronounced public critic of the Bible, of Christianity, and of Christians. So I'm not telling you something from a Christian. Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein issued a joint statement two days before Albert Einstein died, and this is what they said. Those of us who know the most are the gloomiest about the future. Those of us who know the most, not the child growing up, not the teenager dancing through life thinking all is well, not the young couple setting up house and thinking everything is fine and our future's rosy. Those of us who know the most, he said, who see how things are in our world scientifically and technological ways. And And militarily, those of us who know the most are the gloomiest about the future. If you were kind enough to take the time to read the article on the front part of your program tonight, then you will note that quote. I have often thought that is such a staggering quote from a world leader. Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, former president of France, said the world is unhappy. The world is unhappy because it does not know where it's headed and because it senses that if it knew, it would find it was headed for disaster. As a world leader... That's tantamount to what I have told you from these two great minds and philosophers. Those of us who know the most are the gloomiest about the future. The world is desperate for hope. Whether you look at the ecology, we have yet to find out for sure how our unbalancing of the balance between plant life and human life and animal life is really affecting things how our destruction of the rainforests, how the weakening of the ozone layer, we have yet to find out what far-reaching effects that will have. There are people who are terrified as they look into those lines of things. Think for a moment about weapons of war, about ordnance of war. We're hardly out of what was called the superpower arms race. Before we became painfully aware that those warheads are floating around the world, you could almost buy them on eBay any petty pumpernickel state, any rising dictator who wished to have power could almost type it in on his search page and come up with the information about where he could buy some uranium, some nuclear warhead. We've come to understand the dangers that we live in because of the military end of things. Think for a moment about terrorism. Radicals have long ago discovered that as long as you don't care about your life, as long as you don't care about dying, you can virtually do anything you want. See, the moment that you check a bag and walk away. They won't let you put explosives on a plane. But as long as you don't care that you will be blown up as well, a terrorist can almost do anything he wants. And we're desperately trying to fix those problems and stop those kinds of things from happening. And on and on it goes. The exploding population, you know that one of the reasons why they're investigating places like Mars is because they are aware that this earth cannot continue to sustain its population. And there are people who have stated, people in the know, people who are part of the space race, who have acknowledged why we are exploring space is we are eventually going to have to colonize it because this earth can't continue to sustain the exploding population. Then you come to things like bacteria and germs and the use the terrorists can make of those things. The CDC in Atlanta, USAMRID both in the United States, they're desperately working to try and get a handle on the new viruses and the germs to prevent epidemics. Ebola, flesh-eating bacteria, AIDS, SARS, all those things are like nightmares to men working in the field. And we don't go through life thinking about all these problems. And I am not a pessimistic person. I'm just telling you that when you begin to add them up, and you begin to think of people who are facing all these things and feeling like they're on a treadmill, unable to get the genie back in the lamp, unable to to bottle a thing up and stop it, you realize that the world is desperate for hope. Would you let me bring that personally to all of us here tonight and say this? Individuals are dying without hope. Single men and women all over the world, individual people, individuals are dying without hope. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he reminded the Christians in the city of Ephesus that before they were saved, they were without God, they were without Christ, and they were without hope in the world. Without God, without Christ, and without hope in the world. There are hundreds of people who got up today and tonight they are dying without hope. Those who are not saved are living for a world that dead ends at Armageddon. Living for a world that dead ends At Armageddon, no hope. We have an imagery of futility when we talk about somebody rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. The idea is the ship's going down, so what's the point of making sure that the chairs are nice and neat? Or straightening the picture in the house that's on fire. Why are you doing that when the place is going to burn down all around you? That's a little like living for this world and having no hope beyond it, because this world will one day dead end. It will come right up against the justice of God. Men and women are dying without hope. They live for a world that can offer them no permanent hope. They are heading for the ultimate earthly terror. My friend, if you do not know the Savior tonight, the worst thing that can happen to a human being in this world, the worst thing is to die in your sins. There is no earthly horror to match the hopelessness of that. I don't know if you listen to the American talk show host Rush Limbaugh. Some time ago, he had just finished reading and then was speaking about Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, in which Tom Brokaw, of course, was saying that the generation of men and women who went through the Depression and the Second World War was the greatest generation. They faced things that today's society knows nothing about. They rose up and they saved the world, the greatest generation. When he was done, he opened up the lines for conversation. A 23-year-old young man called in, and this is what he had to say. He said, Mr. Limbaugh, I admit to you that the generation that went through the Great Depression and that went through the Second World War faced tremendous hardships, but I submit to you, he said, that my generation is facing the greatest hardship of all and coughing a little <clears throat> and, uh, and what would that be? The young man said, my peers have stopped hoping and believing that things are going to get better they don't expect to live as well as their parents live. They don't expect a brighter future. They've given up hope. Many of the people I know, he said, they've grown up in families in complete disarray. They've given up all hope of ever having a real family experience of their own. Most of my generation, he said, can't imagine anything worth dying for. Anything worth dying for. And he said they're committing suicide in record numbers because they can't imagine there's anything worth living for either. I submit to you, Mr. Limbaugh, that the greatest hardship of all is to live without hope. I submit to you that there are people sitting under this pavilion tonight who are living without hope. And if you do not know my Savior, you are in danger of dying without hope. If you die in your sins, said the Lord Jesus, where I go, you cannot come. You are risking the loss of everything for eternity. Individuals are dying without hope. So come with me now in your thinking to the most important part of our meeting. The world is desperate for hope. Individual men and women, they're dying without hope. The Lord Jesus is your only hope. He's your only hope. Now, that sounds like a broad statement. You may accuse me of a hasty generalization. I I, I want to tell you, friend, with the Bible open before me, based on what it says, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior of sinners, is your only hope. There's one lifeline God is throwing to you tonight. One. And Christ is your only hope. Notice please the information he wants you to know. And so he says to John, don't seal it up. Don't se- seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. you know what he wants? He wants the message to be announced. He wants people to stand before audiences with an open Bible before them. He wants them to announce that he's coming back. He wants you to know that. Part of what my responsibility is, is to put the information in your hand. You see, I can't do that in a cold composed, casual fashion, as if I have no no vested interest in this. It's not like a business meeting where I'm just going over a graph or bar charts and just giving you the information. That's part of what I have to do. But because I have found Christ to mean everything to me, then I want you, friend, desperately want you to know him. So part of our responsibility, the Lord Jesus says, don't close it up, don't seal it up. Announce it, let it be known that I'm coming back. He not only wants us to announce it, he wants you to listen to it. He wants you to hear this message. Do you know when the apostles preached in the book of Acts? You know one of the things that the audience did? Now there were people in the audience and there is very, very graphic telling descriptions used of the reaction. Do you know what it says? As if you'd taken a sharp needle and poked into their heart, it so greatly cut them that they cried out, how can we be saved? But you know what one of the reactions was? When they were told that they were sinners and they did not like what they were hearing, they took their hands. And they put them over their ears like a child. They put their hands over their ears like this. It says they stop their ears. We don't want to hear any more of this. They did not want to hear reality. They did not want the facts to be presented to them. The Lord Jesus says, don't seal it up. Announce it. Let it be heard. And he calls on you to listen. He says, don't supplement it. Don't add to it. Legalists added law keeping. They said, well, now here's what God says. Plus, you must keep the Ten Commandments. People have added books. Religionists have added baptism. Jesus died for you and now we're adding this. You must be baptized in order to be saved. Says the Lord Jesus, don't supplement it. Don't add anything to this message. Let the message go out for everyone to hear. Let it be clear. Let it be uncluttered. Let it be unadulterated. I came to die for sinners. I'm coming back for every sinner who trusts me. Don't seal it. Don't supplement it. Do not subtract from it. Don't take away from it. I'm ashamed to tell you that it's in New Jersey that the Jesus Seminar met, where they voted on what parts of the Savior's words they thought were true. They used different colored marbles, and they voted, oh, I don't think he actually would have said a thing like that. So out of their own, I think it would be a compliment to call it a brain, out of their own brain, they were the ones who decided what what would be Bible and what would not be Bible, what would be true and what would not be true. What would Jesus likely have said, and what did somebody just kind of say he said? says the Lord Jesus, do not subtract from my words. Why? He wants you to know the information. More than that, notice please the indication in his words again and again and again repeated. He wants you not only to know the information, he wants you to know it will be soon. So look what he says. Behold, I come quickly. Know what behold means? Look, look, don't miss this. Don't miss this is what he's saying. If you ever go in an old bookstore and you buy an old book, I mean really old, where the pages are really yellow and about to break if you turn them, you will likely see a convention that printers used to use years ago in the margin, in the margin. In fact, if you've ever bought a book like, um, The Internet for Dummies or Windows for Dummies, I have. They're wonderful books. They've helped me a lot. Uh, He does the same thing. He'll have off on the side. He'll, he'll put like a light bulb and he'll say, this is something you need to think over. See? And he'll put a sign if something is really serious. Don't miss this. Do you know what printers used to do? They used to put a hand like this. So you're reading through a, a page and you come to a paragraph and over here in the margin there's a hand like this saying, stop, don't miss this. This is important. That's what the word behold means. The Savior is saying, do not miss this. In a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye, I'm coming back. Behold, I come quickly. I'm coming to take my people to heaven. I'm coming to bring my people home. Don't miss this. Be a part of this, says the Savior. It's a hymn that Christians love. It was translated by a man named Mr. Stuart K. Hine, and it was translated into English from the Swedish language. He was a missionary working in the western Ukraine when he first heard the Russian version of that Swedish hymn. He was preaching the gospel in Carpathian mountain villages, and the people to whom he was preaching were people who had been displaced as a result of the Second World War. They had to leave their villages. They had to go back, back into Russia, back to the Ukraine, whereas their homes and their possessions were all somewhere else. Again and again and again. They asked him one question. When can we go home? When can we go home? When can we go home? Until the word burned itself in his mind. So he added a verse to that hymn that we love about how great God is. That famous second verse, one of the finest words ever written, When I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. But on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to put away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. When can we go home? Mr. Hine, when will we be able to go home? So he added the verse. When Christ shall come with sound of acclamation and take me home. What joy will fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God. How great thou art. Do you know that the Lord Jesus is coming to take his people home? I am so glad that I am ready. I am so glad that I have a home waiting for me on the other side. Do you? It's one of the tragedies of our modern society that there are people that we call Homeless people. My friend, I will tell you a tragedy even greater than that. Imagine being homeless for eternity. Imagine having no home on the other side. Imagine having no Savior waiting for you. Imagine no welcoming when you die. Imagine dying all alone in your sins, going out into the black, into the dark, passing through that dreadful experience of dying and suddenly finding yourself in hell, lost forever. I am so glad I have a home. Behold, I come quickly. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Surely I come quickly. That means, yes, I come quickly. Or truthfully, I come quickly. Or verily, I come quickly. Because he doesn't only say, behold, don't miss this. But he says, surely, don't doubt this. This is the truth. I am coming again. Those who are saved are absolutely convinced that the coming of the Lord is very near. The fuse is lit. The powder keg is there. We just don't know how long we have. My friend, this world like a powder keg is going to explode. The moment that the Lord Jesus takes his people away, the events that will take place in this world will be horrific. And the Lord Jesus says, don't miss this, don't doubt this, I'm coming again. He gives his invitation to you. And to me, there is something marvelous about it. That he will not allow the Bible to close without reminding his people in his last words, I'm coming again. And he will not permit the Bible to close without once more saying to you, Come. Come and be saved.
0: Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope all the work has been done. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this poor, hopeless world to provide an incredible salvation. It's vast, it's full, and it's free for all who will trust him. And won't you do that today? Then you can join the millions of saved ones who will go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. Remember, his coming can be at any moment. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday night as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and the very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gospel hall nearest you. Also, feel free to take a look at other literature and audio offers at anchorpointradio.com, where you can also subscribe to our Anchor Point podcast. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an Anchor.